0: You're listening to Sex and Love with me, your host Dr. Emily Jamian. The goal of this podcast is to educate, inspire, and liberate. My hope is that you will learn tools to create connection and cultivate passion, both within yourself and in your relationships. Here's what's coming up in today's episode. I'm so thrilled to have today's guest who was recently featured on The Daily Show, by the way. Before I tell you about her, let me explain why everybody, whether you personally own a vulva or not, needs to listen to this episode. It may seem more common to hear men complain of things like penis size, but insecurity about the appearance of the vulva is becoming increasingly common. Aesthetic surgeries designed to change the appearance of the vulva are fast-growing. It's common these days to see them advertised on plastic surgeon websites and OB-GYN websites. And in contrast to other cosmetic procedures, these surgeries can be risky, as you're about to learn in this episode. So why do both men and women need to pay attention? Because we are all responsible for changing the narrative about women's bodies. At the end of the day, pleasure is way more important than appearance. This is One Woman's Story. And please don't forget that I depend on your support to keep this podcast running. Be sure to subscribe, write a review, and share with a friend who might find it interesting. Joined today by Jessica Penn. And when I was thinking about the best way to introduce her, one word kept coming to mind, and that is crusader. She is a crusader, not just of the clitoris, but really for women in general. I'm going to turn it over to her so that she can tell you a little bit about her story. And I think that by the end of it, you'll understand why crusader is the right word to describe her. Jessica, thank you so much for joining me
1: today. Yeah. So I'm a crusader for better inclusion of clitoral anatomy in medical literature and curricula. And the reason why is because I had a labiaplasty when I was barely 18. I sought surgery because I had read online that protruding labia minora were considered unfeminine and embarrassing, that they were caused by excess androgens, that they were caused by sexual activity, masturbation, and aging. So... I got the impression that they were this really shameful, embarrassing thing, that something was wrong with me, that I had labia minora that were really out of the norm. I read online that most women want labia minora that don't stick out, and mine stuck out. So I thought I had a problem. There wasn't any information on what was normal back then. Like There weren't statistics on labia minora size. So I had no data to go off of and I only had the derogatory statements that I found online and in peer-reviewed medical literature.
0: So just for anyone listening who doesn't know, let's just start with a very basic anatomy. So Jessica's referring to her labiaplasty, which is supposed to be a minimization of the labia minora. And if you think of a vulva, if you're looking at it gynecologically, you have the outer labia majora, which are like the outer lips, and then the inner labia, which are the labia minora. And for some women, the inner labia protrude a little bit. For some women, quite a bit. And this is something that a lot of women feel insecure about because of what Jessica was describing, what she had read online about a lot of the stigma that comes for women who have labia minora who protrude a bit, all of which is total BS to be frank, but a lot of women for those reasons feel very insecure about that part of their body. And so it sounds like that's exactly what happened to you. And you Mm -hmm. began exploring the option of labiaplasty, which you ended up going through with at 18. So can you tell people a little bit about what happened when you woke up? Because it sounds like the doctor that you went to kind of went overboard.
1: Yeah. So he completely amputated my labia minora and he did a clitoral hood reduction without my consent and he damaged the nerves of my clitoris. So I lost clitoral sensation after my surgery, I was told that my surgery could not have caused me to lose clitoral sensation. I was also told that I looked normal despite the fact that my labia minora had been completely removed. I went to two other ob after my doctor. They both said the same thing that my surgery could not have caused my loss of sexual function. And, you know, I got very frustrated. And the whole thing was it was extremely, extremely hard to talk about and very traumatic. Um, and I blamed myself. And I remember, you know, because of how we're taught that like these are things that you don't talk about. Yes. When I first brought up my sexual function to my OBGYN, not to the doctor who performed my labiaplasty, but to his partner actually, who is female because I switched to his partner because I felt uncomfortable with him.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um And I remember like basically shaking because I was so nervous to be talking about like, oh, like I don't have, you know, like I was having trouble orgasming. I couldn't Mm -hmm. feel much sensation. And it was so awkward to talk about. And I think that's one big problem that goes on is so many women have trouble talking about these issues. Um, And I
0: think it's not just women who have trouble talking about these issues. It's the doctors themselves. I mean, these are the people we're going to and trusting them with, you know, all of our physical health and there is little to no training I would say I would err on the side of saying no training really for most medical professionals about how to talk to their patients about sex. And a lot of them will prescribe medications and they don't talk about the sexual side effects or obviously in your case, what the potential side effects could be. And it sounds like there was such a focus on the aesthetic and how it looked cosmetically. And there wasn't really any conversation, obviously prior or after about how that might have changed things from a pleasure perspective.
1: Yeah, before my surgery, I actually was worried about risk to my sexual function, and I did search for information on that specifically. And I read online and in peer-reviewed medical literature that there were no risks to sexual function. I read that the labia minora played no role in sexual function, which is wrong. And yet many doctors still say that. I actually got a message from a woman yesterday who was telling me how she had been to doctors who had basically tried to talk her into labiaplasty. And that when she had asked them about the wrist, they had said that the labia minor don't play a role in sexual function. To me, that is just crazy. Yeah. So tell people what role they play. Well, a lot of women really do have sensation in their labia minor, And I remember, you know, when I was 17 and I was looking into this, I was aware that I had sensitivity, but because I read all these doctors saying that they didn't play a role, I sort of discounted my own judgment about my own body which is sort of crazy to think about but i think the authority that doctors have can cause us to discount our own feelings and judgments right sometimes totally yeah and so basically they have the same types of nerve endings as the clitoris actually just not as many um i also think they play an important role mechanically And facilitating clitoral sensation, that is not something that gets talked about much, but that was Masters and Johnson's theory for how women orgasmed during intercourse.
0: The sensation of the labia minora?
1: No, they believed that basically mechanical action on the labia minora translated to movement of the clitoral hood. And I, you know, I think that's really valid. (laughs) Um, They also play a really important protective role. So one thing that happens is when the labia minora are completely removed, the vestibule is exposed, and that ironically can actually cause discomfort. It's a bit funny to me because they always attribute large labia minora to discomfort. I personally had no discomfort at all, so I'm always skeptical of that claim. And sometimes Mm -hmm. I think there are times when people feel like, you know, if they have a problem with like a bike seat or some pants, they want to change their vulva instead of just like getting a new bike seat or new pants. And to me, that's a bit crazy because you shouldn't have to change your body to like fit the things in the world, I guess.
0: Right. Totally. Totally. So there are some cases, and these are a little bit more unusual, but they do happen, in which the labia, sometimes the labia minora, sometimes the labia majora, are significantly larger. And this can cause discomfort for some women. If you're listening and you think you might be one of these women, do your due diligence before considering an operation. Look online at pictures of vulvas. I'll post a reputable link in the show notes and be sure to go to a surgeon who has advanced training in the complexities of female genital anatomy. I also want to add that there are other reasons why women might experience pain in the vulva issues like vulvar vestibulitis, genitopelvic pain penetration disorder, formerly known as vaginismus, or even some skin conditions can also cause genital pain. You want someone who can properly conduct a good differential diagnosis before going under the knife. I usually recommend visiting with a urogynecologist or a gynecologist who is a specialist in sexual pain. A sex therapist can also go a long way in helping you know what questions to ask your doctor. Sex therapists can also go a long way in helping you work out body image issues that may prevent you from feeling more secure with your sexual self. So this is one of the fastest growing cosmetic procedures. I mean, I am shocked at the fact that I see it listed on so many plastic surgeons websites now as a surgical procedure that they offer. What, what do you think about that? Where is that coming from? Why has this become so popular for women?
1: I think the reason it is so popular is because it is the exploitation of ignorance There is pervasive ignorance around vulvas. And so it's really easy to create what I think is a false beauty standard and sell it to women because we have no ability to go out there and be like, no, this is bullshit.
0: Mm -hmm. And
1: the funny thing is it does often get blamed on porn, but I don't think that the problem is porn because I see all types of vulvas in porn.
0: Interesting. I would have probably been someone who blamed porn. So tell me what you think it is.
1: I mean, when I first saw porn, what I saw is that people looked like me before my surgery, and I realized I had never needed surgery. It was actually porn that made me realize that, and that helped me realize what happened to me was not okay, and my surgeon shouldn't have operated on me. Before I saw porn, I thought I had really needed my surgery because I thought that I had very abnormal anatomy after I saw porn, I saw women who looked exactly like I looked before my surgery. I saw that I was normal. And I saw that no one looked how I looked after my surgery. So that actually helped me realize that, you know, what happened to me was not okay. Porn obviously has its problems. But I would argue that porn is the only venue where you can go and see a wide range of vulvas. I mean, I realized. Like there are projects like the vulva gallery and there's that great wall of vaginas and things like that. But, you know, if you look to medical literature for like diagrams of vulvas or informational vulvas look like you're going to get a more biased portrayal of what vulvas are supposed to look like than in porn. And the research shows that women get their ideas about what is normal from medical sources more so than from porn So I will argue that it's doctors who drive the rise in female genital cosmetic surgery. They also just openly shame women for having protruding labia minora. I personally had no insecurities at all until I saw what doctors had written online. Other women arrive at their insecurities in different ways, but a lot of the myths that are behind the stigma of large labia minora originated in medical literature and continue in medical literature so I would argue that when women feel insecure because they feel that largely avia minora are associated with aging or with sexual activity or masturbation or that they're not feminine, my opinion is all those ideas come from medical literature. That's-
0: You know, it's really interesting that you point that out. I had never thought of it that way. Like I said, I was probably someone who would have blamed porn, but you're right. There is actually a pretty wide variety of vulvas depicted in porn. And when I think of- You know, like the graphics that I see in any medical text or even I think like in books written for kids who are like going through puberty, usually what's depicted are like very small labia minora. And, you know, when you think of that gynecological view of the vulva, I'm thinking about every picture that I've seen is usually these very, very small labia minora, which is not the case for a lot of women.
1: Yeah. And they rarely discuss the changes in the labia minora that typically occur during puberty. One study showed that they increase by three times in length from age five to 15. So it's incredibly normal for them to develop during puberty. And yet that never gets talked about. Yeah. So I think a lot of girls, they end up wondering if there's something wrong with them because their bodies change and nobody talks about it. What's very frustrating is a year ago, WebMD agreed to add anatomy of the vulva. Um, They have basically nothing on the vulva or clitoris, even though they describe penile anatomy in detail. My memory is they have three articles on penile anatomy and how the penis works. They have nothing on the clitoris or vulva except now they do have the article on, you know, how your labia R may be too big and you may want to get them trimmed. But you have gone
0: such a long way in changing medical literature. I mean, I feel like you are on the front lines. I don't see or hear anyone else calling out the textbooks and the publishers and the authors the way that you do. I mean, you that's why you are a crusader, because you are literally changing the narrative the kind of what people are talking about, but also what is written in these textbooks. So tell people what some of the changes are that you've made. And um, because there was like nothing in medical textbooks about innervation of the clitoris. And you've changed that, which is amazing. So tell people about some of the changes that have been made really because of you.
1: Well, I've gotten three major OBGYN textbooks updated with new illustrations and descriptions of the clitoris so that they now show the course of the dorsal nerves in the clitoris. They also show cross sections of the clitoris, which were never published in any medical textbooks before. So that's really good. I also influence a plastic surgery textbook by contacting the author. So I didn't directly change that one, but basically he was asked to write the chapter. And after he wrote the chapter, he contacted me and he said, I just want to let you know, I put this in. And so, and I mean, honestly, there's one other where I, you know, I count it, but really it's not updated. What they have done is they cited a study that goes over the anatomy but they didn't actually go over the anatomy. That was very frustrating. Yeah, I thought they were going to go over it because they said we have added this study. And I'm like, Oh, okay. That means you're going to talk about it. They kind of
0: half-assed it.
1: <laughs> so, um, so not that many have come out with the changes yet. Um, I think, you know, some of my biggest victories will not be until next year and they will be the upcoming editions of Netter, and so Netter's Atlas of Anatomy is a really commonly used anatomy textbook, and also Moore's Essentials of Anatomy and Moore's Clinically Oriented Anatomy, and also Grant's Anatomy. New illustrations have been made for all four of those anatomy textbooks, and I actually got to see the illustrations for Moore and Grant over. Oh, how a- cool. Example. Yeah. So the editors of that textbook are really, really nice. And so I know for sure that those are going, going to be good. And I think once there are popular textbooks that are doing things right, hopefully other textbooks will fall in line. Unfortunately, I haven't really seen that happen in OBGYN. Certain textbooks are not paying attention to their competition, which is sort of frustrating because you would think that they would want to To be competitive? To stay ahead of the changing literature, yeah. Um, I think that there is still a belief that is prevalent that this anatomy isn't important. So with Gray's surgical anatomy, I asked for clitoral anatomy to be included, and it was deliberately left out. And that editor defended this omission on Twitter I noticed he has since deleted the thread where he was defending it. What was his defense? His defense was actually even crazier than I could have anticipated. It was that gynecological anatomy isn't typically covered in general surgery literature. So then it was nice to see some surgeons be like, why are you saying that OBGYNs aren't surgeons? And like, who is going to operate on women? And like, aren't they going to maybe think that Gray's surgical anatomy has the anatomy? So one problem is the way that they cover the anatomy is they cover female reproductive anatomy and male reproductive anatomy. What is really funny is Gray's surgical anatomy has about double the words to describe male reproductive anatomy, even though male reproductive anatomy is less complicated, but they just managed to leave enough out of female reproductive anatomy. I actually contacted the author of the female reproductive anatomy chapter in his defense for omitting clitoral anatomy was he just didn't have enough room. And he sort of had a point in that so few words were assigned to his chapter. The biggest problem, I think, is that anatomy gets divided into male and female reproductive anatomy. And the clitoris and entire vulva really are not considered reproductive. And so they don't get covered well.
0: Yeah, that's what kept coming to mind when you were using the word reproductive anatomy is that I'm sure a lot of people don't consider that part of the body to be reproductive in nature. And I want to talk about that for just a minute because you posted something not too long ago that talked about the role of the clitoris, I think, or maybe it was the role of orgasm in conception, I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but I was always, and I commented on it because I was always one of those people who was like, the clitoris serves no other function than sexual pleasure. And that's a great thing. And everyone should feel excited
1: about that. But I actually think that's a really damaging narrative, especially when it comes to getting this anatomy covered in medicine, because if we make it all about pleasure, there's just no way to argue that it's that medically important, I guess, or it's a harder case to make. And I think, you know, there are multiple assumptions, I think, that just don't work. Like, last night, I was reading this book called Sapiens, and I actually got pretty upset, because he talked about how sexual pleasure and orgasm had evolved so that males would be rewarded for mating with fertile females. But he had this whole paragraph on why males evolved the ability to orgasm. And he said that males would not bother reproducing if it were not pleasurable. So why do we assume that females would reproduce if it were not pleasurable? Why is there this totally different scientific narrative around it? It's not logical. If the purpose of male sexual pleasure is reproduction, then the purpose of female sexual pleasure is also reasonably reproduction.
0: Yeah, I mean, females are going to want to do it more if it feels good, thereby increasing the chances that they'll get pregnant, right? I mean, to me, that makes a lot of sense.
1: So people always point to how women don't typically orgasm from intercourse alone, but that doesn't mean that clitoral sensation, pleasure, doesn't contribute to desire for reproductive activity, You know, because typically the clitoris is involved in foreplay. I mean, that's one way men get women to have intercourse with them. Right.
0: right. It helps with arousal. It helps with lubrication and it makes intercourse, you know, more pleasurable for both people involved. And I can definitely see how then there's a motivating factor there. It's all in the reward center of the
1: brain. If if there is a reward, you'll want to do it again. So people always point to where the clitoris is located in order to argue that it's not really for reproduction.
0: That it's kind of unnecessary.
1: Yeah. But it's actually, in my opinion, in a great place because it's less likely to get damaged in childbirth even as is some women's clitorises do tear in childbirth and they suffer, you know, losses in their sensation because of that so like from an evolutionary perspective that sort of damage would have been wanted to be avoided
0: totally yeah it makes sense given the many things that can happen if someone's having a vaginal delivery that you would want the clitoris separated a little bit from the opening of the vagina so that it's protected.
1: Yeah. And the internal parts of the clitoris do surround the vagina. Mm -hmm. However, it's the external parts that are most sensitive and most involved in female orgasm. In college, nerves that we were required to dissect from frogs were, I think, a little bit smaller, actually, than the nerves in the clitoris, which it's not hard to dissect these nerves. Sometimes I get kind of snarky and say that, like, a fourth grader could do it, or that you could do it with stone tools. Like, I'll call this this stone age science. Yeah, What's really insulting, I think, to women everywhere is how this really basic science gets left out and it's insulting because of how sophisticated science is and how sophisticated medicine is.
0: And I, I am one, and I'm sure many people are as well, who view medicine as a space where there is no misogyny, where there is no racism, where there is no patriarchy. But the fact is, it's all in there and it's really damaging to women and other marginalized groups.
1: Yeah. I mean, that's funny
0: because there's so much
1: misogyny. Oh, it's
0: almost like when I was reading through some of the articles that you had written online and just the brick walls that you kept hitting as you were trying to go to these doctors and figure out what had happened to you. The word that kept coming to mind is like, this is like a boys club, even female doctors, like just are so afraid of speaking out against their colleagues that no one was advocating for you.
1: Yeah, female doctors won't typically speak up. Um, a lot of them are very reticent to change as well. Yeah. Um. You know, 19 out of 20 of the program directors for the top 20 OBGYN residency programs are women. I could not get any of them to agree to teach clitoral anatomy to their residents. Over half of OBGYN leadership is women now, I think. Most of the council on residency education in obstetrics and gynecology is female. Um, I could not get them to dictate that the nerves and the clitoris be taught. You know, I had them on the phone and I could not get them to recognize the need to address that this has not been getting taught and needs to get taught. And it's really bizarre how there seems to be a pervasive lack of interest, even among women. And that's one thing that I think people are really uncomfortable with. Like people always want to blame men, but it is just as much a problem with women, I think.
0: I can tell you, I'm, I'm friends with my OBGYN on Instagram, who is female, and I'm always sharing your stuff with her. I'm like, look at this really cool dissection that Jessica and Pin posted today. And, you know, she always likes it. And so.
1: Thank you so much. So she likes it.
0: Yeah, I mean she thinks it's great. I, I think there are probably people out there who do and who are interested yeah. in learning, but unfortunately they're harder to find.
1: Yeah, I mean what needs to happen is professional medical organizations need to dictate that this is getting taught to surgeons who operate on vulvas. And so that means that the American Board of OBGYN needs to make it required learning for OBGYNs. What they have done is they have made it required learning for urogynecologists but they have deliberately chosen not to make it required learning for OBGYNs. That's a choice that they're making. It's negligent. It's like willfully negligent. The information is there and I am like pushing it, you know, because sometimes the information just being there isn't enough. Like people won't notice it. They won't see it. They won't realize. They'll genuinely be ignorant. But other times there becomes a point where people are intentionally choosing to not include it and to not dictate that it gets taught. And the reason they don't is because of the lack of perceived reproductive role. That is what is primarily behind this. You know, one argument is that even if we say the clitoris is not reproductive, which I think is wrong, because I think it is, that's still not a good argument for leaving it out because we don't leave out major nerves for other body parts, you know, we're not going to like leave out anatomy of the toe because like your toes really not that important. I think most women yeah. had to make the choice, to probably trade like a toe for like their clitoris, you know, yeah, like, I think most would. Yeah. So it's just funny that it, the clitoris is not considered as medically important as a toe. Yeah. And this needs to be acknowledged for what it is because Basically, medicine does not acknowledge women as having a right to genital integrity and sexual function. They do not consider harm to women's genitals as something worth preventing. And this is systemic. It's a choice that they're making when they decide, you know, the penis is something that you learn in general anatomy, but the clitoris is not.
0: Obviously, vulva owners are going to see this episode as being really important to them. Why is it important for penis owners to listen to this episode?
1: I think it's important for men to be aware of the inequalities that persist in our society because I think a lot of the times men think that we have reached equality and why are women still complaining? And, you know, they'll tend to think like feminists are just trying to be victims instead of realizing that there are real problems that need to be addressed if women are harmed in this way it affects relationships significantly like this is not something that just women have to deal with now I had one very sort of selfish and annoying guy tell me that I was missing his part of the picture and how much the harm that his girlfriend had suffered affected him and he kind of was like a little overly sensitive. Like he felt like I had like discounted his pain. He was like, you don't understand my pain. And I was like, well, like. But I, you know, I,
0: I can see creating space for that because it can become a major couple issue. You know, whenever, whenever, I am working with a couple if it's not uncommon for one person to identify as the one with the problem. But at the end of the day, if one person is suffering in some way, sexually, it affects the whole relationship and create can create suffering across the board. So I think it's really important for men to have a realistic idea of how the vulva should look and be just as invested in female sexual pleasure as women are. And I think this is a really great opportunity for them to to learn and to learn anatomy and to learn about sexual pleasure and to see the potential negative consequence when sexual pleasure is negatively affected in some way.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think that there needs to be more awareness about the fact that the clitoris is the primary, so much a sensory organ of female sexual response that most women orgasm from their clitorises, Clitoral stimulation is extremely important. There was actually a study that I sent a friend that showed that anorgasmic women, they don't get as much oxytocin like when they have sex with their partners, they literally have less of the bonding hormone. They are less chemically capable of bonding with their partners if they're not orgasming. Like that's pretty important. <laughs> I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad, but That's what's happening biologically. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's one reason for men to really care about their partner's orgasms. I think male orgasm gets so prioritized and it's taken for granted that of course, like men should have orgasms every time, but people tend to think that female orgasm is just some kind of bonus or luxury, you know, but it's not, it's extremely important. And really more broadly, I would say not just the
0: female orgasm, but female sexual pleasure. Which is all encompassing. I mean, there's a psychological component to that, there's an emotional component, and obviously the physical component. And so, if for any reason sex is not pleasurable for a woman, there's less of a chance she's going to want to do it.
1: Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's a feedback system where sexual desire requires that sex be pleasurable for women. And so, If they're enjoying sex, they will want it more and everyone's going to be happier. Yeah, I mean, I also just think that there is a need for men to be aware of the problems that are facing their wives and girlfriends and daughters and female friends. Totally, totally. But yeah, I just want to say one thing. As popular as labiaplasty is and has been for a long time, there are still no training standards for labiaplasty. Neither OBGYNs nor plastic surgeons are trained to do labiaplasty in residency. So on top of not learning the anatomy, they also are not trained. There's no no standard of care. So the standard of care is kind of a vague concept. I would say more that the standard of care here is just exceptionally low. The standard of care is for surgeons to do surgeries they're not trained to do on anatomy they don't know. That's the standard. So my father is a plastic surgeon. And one thing that we've tried to do is we've tried to make it so that surgery centers will require that surgeons have been trained, at least like, you know, there are like programs to train them. There just aren't any through their professional medical organizations, which is what should be happening. We wanted them to show that they had had some kind of training, even if it was some BS training, just something, anything. Yeah, And we couldn't. You know, it's always hard, like I will post about the things that I am able to do, like change textbooks, but there are a lot of things that I try that don't work. Another thing is professional medical organizations are responsible for the standard of care. They are responsible for setting guidelines for what information gets taught to doctors. If the American board of OBGYN wanted to make it so every OBGYN knows anatomy of the clitoris, they could do that immediately. The American College of ob also has a huge role in that these professional medical organizations are not doing the duties that they claim to do. They are the regulatory bodies for medicine, and they answer to no one, and they are not liable for anything. So this is a case where there's systemic negligence. It's been extremely difficult to change, and there's no legal mechanism to change it. The other thing that people typically don't understand is if there is systemic negligence, it's almost impossible to sue anyone because having a good case requires showing the standard of care wasn't followed. Ignorance of anatomy is pervasive. If a lot of doctors are performing these surgeries in a way that results in complete amputations and, you know, other problems like that, you can't sue a doctor for doing that. So, women who have had their labia minora completely amputated have not been able to get lawyers to take their cases. That's really scary. I mean, that is
0: really scary. And so, I mean, I I know women who have looked into this procedure. I've had clients who have gotten this procedure and I just really hope anyone listening to this hears what you're saying and does their homework and really considers whether or not like, let me ask you this. If a woman is considering like seriously considering getting this, what questions should they ask their doctor and what kind of doctor should they go to?
1: Okay. Well, first one, I want to say is the only time that I think women should be getting labiaplasties is if the labia are causing them some kind of discomfort or pain. Um, otherwise, if they're seeking labiaplasty for cosmetic reasons. What they need to understand is they're supporting an industry that lies to women, right? They publish false information in order to stigmatize largely labia minora, right? They do things like advertise on Facebook that this is like a haircut for your genitals. They get on TikTok in front of kids and they show sandwiches with ham sticking out and they cut off the ham to show kids what surgery they can have on their vulvas.
0: That's disgusting
1: they consistently minimize risks. On real self, you can see experts in female genital cosmetic surgery describing anatomy incorrectly and misinforming patients about risks. So even if someone is capable of finding a doctor who is safe, they need to understand that they are putting money into this field that is fundamentally corrupt and harming women. One thing that people say is, "Oh, you'll be fine as long as you go to someone who has done hundreds of these procedures before." Well, that's not always true. I've heard from women who have gone harmed even when their surgeon had done a lot of them before. But the other thing to recognize is if that's how you're thinking, like how much are you valuing those first 100 people? There was one female OB/GYN who talked about how she just started doing these surgeries without any training, which is what they do. They just start doing them because they look easy. And she said she dodged bullets with her first dozen or so patients. That's not how it's supposed to work. You know, like when doctors learn how to do rhinoplasties or breast reductions or facelifts, anything like that, the way that happens is it happens in residency. It happens under supervision. There's a formal training process. So if you go to a labioplasty, it's a totally different thing than going to get a rhinoplasty, right? A nose drop. If you go to get a rhinoplasty with a board-certified plastic surgeon, you have assurance that they have learned detailed anatomy of the nose. They cannot become a board-certified plastic surgeon without having gone through this process where they have been formally trained, where they know anatomy, where they have done multiple rhinoplasties under the supervision of an experienced surgeon. None of these protections are in place with labioplasty. And the reason why they're not in place is because the field has completely neglected to make it safe. For one, because of taboo. The professional medical organizations are uncomfortable with it, so they don't want to get involved. And then there's also the idea that it's just not important, that you're just cutting off skin, that these are really simple surgeries. They don't realize what they're doing. So like when plastic surgeons and OBGYNs perform clitoral head reductions, typically they think they're just removing extra skin, They don't realize that the clitoral hood is basically the skin of the clitoris. The nerves of the clitoris are just beneath the skin of the clitoral hood. They don't acknowledge this. The dorsal nerves of the clitoris were not even mentioned in female general cosmetic surgery literature until, I think, 2015. If there's any sort of business that is harming people, what we can do is we can stop giving them our money right? If there was a company that you knew had unsafe conditions for their workers or wasn't paying their workers or, you know, had a, a product that killed an unreasonable number of people and they didn't like bother to try and make it safer or something like that, would you continue to buy their products? No. And so that's what this is like, I think. And so I think people need to realize that because like, even if you're the one who like knows which product to say for like you're not one of the workers, so what does it affect you? You're still contributing to that. You know, I think the only way this will change, so it, it can change for me, like making a big fuss and just strong arming people and working for free, or it can change from women not accepting this standard, right? It can change from the customers saying, hey, like we are not comfortable With surgeons operating on our vulvas without formal training, without adequate education in vulvar anatomy that is required and not just. So some women are comfortable with their surgeon saying, I'm different. I know the anatomy, but most other doctors don't. And I think there's something very, very wrong with that. My problem with surgeons who say they're the exception, they know the anatomy is Why aren't you speaking up about your colleagues? How can you just look the other way when you know that your colleagues are operating on women blind and harming people? Instead, that's not what they do. Instead, they say, I'm special. I know the anatomy. And that's why you should give me an extra Mm $4,000. That's what they do. It
0: is an institutional problem. It is a systemic problem. There's a lot of change that needs to happen. But thank you so much for having this conversation with me today. I know it is an uphill battle for you sometimes, but I just want to tell you that even on days where it doesn't feel like it, you do have people behind you. And I think you are doing such amazing work and, you know, I I feel really honored to have you on and to give you the platform to talk about that. And I hope that anyone listening to this episode today will definitely share it with a friend who may be considering going through labiaplasty or a physician who does these procedures just so that they can educate themselves. Thanks. We are going to wrap up now, but I just want to okay. thank you again for joining me. Thank you thank you so much for tuning in to today's episode of sex and love with me, Dr. Emily Jamia. If you enjoyed this episode, don't forget to like subscribe and share with a friend or partner. I release an episode every other Monday. You can find me on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at Dr. Emily Jamia. If you and your partner are struggling with emotional and sexual intimacy, check out my online workshop available at www.emilyjamia.com. See you guys next time on sex and love.